0: This podcast is brought to you by Songfinch, probably the most fun we've ever had with a sponsor.
1: Their motto is story by you, song by us. And they craft original songs from your memories, experiences, and feelings that you can share as a unique gift to someone. Now you could use this for any occasion. If you want to create a surprise song to your loved one for an anniversary, a wedding, a birthday, or just something special.
0: Yeah, I mean, the possibilities are endless. I was thinking this would be a cool way to propose. (laughs) Imagine this. Let's say you're going out with your girlfriend and you're going out to dinner and you get in the car and you're like, let's listen to tunes. And she doesn't know it. But what you're doing is you're going to play the song off of your phone to your car and you're just listening to it as if it's a normal song. She's listening and she's like, wait a minute. That's my name. Wait a minute, those are memories I've had. And as she starts looking at you and then the chorus comes in, which is, will you marry me or something? Can you imagine that? That'd be so cool.
1: Yeah, the romantic is coming out in you, Jason. But they (laughs) could do any mood that you want. You customize this. You get a professional songwriter that creates a -a one-of-a-kind song for you. And it's very easy.
0: Oh, it was so easy. Actually, it was fun. The way the website is designed, they guide you through the process, but with really cool icons. They start off with just three questions. You answer who you're creating this for, what's the occasion, and what's the desired reaction.
1: Step two is you tell the story, the memory, moments, and experiences with that person. Also, the mood you would like to pick for the song.
0: Songfinch was so cool, they made a song for us, and I gifted it to Christina. And I said, basically, I want it to be about the four years of us podcasting, and I want it to be fun and playful.
1: Then you select the style or genre of music. You can pick from any different genre, Indie pop, country, rap and hip hop, folk. And you can also choose if you want a male or female vocalist. And that's it. Then you receive the product, which is your original song. You also get a homepage on their website where you can listen to it, read the lyrics. I loved doing that for us. And learn more about the songwriter who created it for you. And they also mail you a greeting card with your unique URL printed on the inside so you can customize it and gift it with the song. Not only that, this was so quick. I didn't expect the turnaround to be so fast. In seven days, all of this is ready for you.
0: So we want to give you guys a little taste of the song that was created for us. It kind of feels like the Coffee Clutch Crew anthem.
2: Come and the hey, we'll you free if you to in, this round on me. Come and the hey, we'll you free if you to in, this round on me. We're talking Game of Thrones and Mr. Robot 2 But the best part about it all is hearing from you So here's a little gratitude and ounce of truth Thanks for listening to us while we do what we do Come on, this one goes out to the Coffee Clutch Crew And
0: that's it. That's just a little bit of it. It's a full song that they created for us. And for our Clatchers, you can go to the website, songfinch.com, fill out your song, and then at the end, put the promo code CLATCHERS. That's K L A T C H E R S for $20 off. Songfinch.com, promo code CLATCHERS. Game of Thrones. Oh my God! And there's dragons. You gotta watch it. And you see them? Keep, there's this Birds fight scene. And fire. Another Really small. Uh, <laughs> really helpless. The guy I amazing guy or Seriously, we gotta see it. What's his name? like a And uh, he lost you know, his hair. And, uh, he lost his he hair. hair. Cool. Fucking red wedding. I cannot give you back
2: your homes or restore your dead to life. But perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our
0: Welcome to the Coffee Clutch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason.
1: I'm Christina.
0: And today we are reviewing episode 5 Eastwatch.
1: As we said, directed by Matt Shackman and written by Dave Hill, Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 97% and IMDb a 9.2. They said Eastwatch traded the fiery spectacle of the previous episode for a slow burn approach, but nonetheless delivered some spectacular revelations and reunions, focusing on bringing its surviving protagonists back together. Jason, we gave our initial thoughts and reactions during the instant coffee, but we have a real lot to get into today.
0: Yeah, your notes are a little too thick for me. And also, I don't agree with slow burn because it felt like everything was revealed in this episode.
1: There was a lot of narrative points and plot twists, but I guess coming off the action of the end of episode four, maybe this felt a little bit more of a slow burn to some people. I really agree that we're trying to bring all of our main characters back together in the same place, and I think that's why we're forced to maybe move a little quicker and throw some of the rules away in order to get them there. But we're going to talk about all of that, our crow's eye view, our raven rating, our most valuable bannerman for the episode, and our Clatcher's comments. And before we do, I want to go back to the title meaning for a moment. I think it was a surprise to some people that the episode was titled Eastwatch, even though we didn't spend a lot of time there. We did discuss in the instant cast that it's one of three manned castles along the wall. There used to be 19 in total, and they're still there but abandoned. And it helped me, we pulled up a map of the wall more specifically. A lot of the maps of Westeros that you see are sort of zoomed out on the entire continent. But this one zooms more in on the north, the wall itself, and what's above the wall. It gave me a better idea for the geography of things. So here you can see... The three manned towers, you have the Shadow Tower at the far western end, Castle Black in the middle, where the King's Road meets the Wall, and at the far east end you have Eastwatch, where the Wall drops into an inlet of the Shivering Sea called the Bay of Seals. As the only castle located along the sea, it serves as the port and resupply post for the Night's Watch. The capital city of King's Landing, as well as the cities of White Harbor and Gulltown, are also located on the eastern coast of the continent, So this means it's relatively easy for provisions and news to reach Eastwatch. And by the way, we do know that they possess a small fleet of ships of their own, but they're not frequently used, and so they're often left unmanned and tied up at anchor.
0: So the water there is never frozen.
1: I guess not here in the Bay of Seals. I'm not sure about what happens when you get real far north, like to the Shivering Sea. And at the start of the books, there were less than 200 soldiers based at Eastwatch. I don't know if that's roughly equivalent. We know that John sent some wildlings to man it, but either way, that's not a lot of people. And let's talk for just a second about the wall, which again, going back to the book, was allegedly built by Brandon the Builder after the War for the Dawn to defeat the others. We talked a lot in previous episodes about the fact that we knew the Children of the Forest had helped to construct the wall in some way, and we wondered if they had put magical spells along it, something that would help to keep the White Walkers out. But we kind of thought that if that was the case, we were going to see something happen to it when Bran passed through the wall. Since he was touched or marked by the Night's King, there would be some kind of destruction of that magic allowing them to pass through. Then you had put forth the idea a while ago that perhaps they could freeze the water, the White Walkers, so that they could come across that way. As of yet, we haven't seen any of those things happen. So I heard this really great other theory online that maybe the wall isn't just ice. Perhaps when the children were helping to create it, they put dragon glass into the wall itself. And this is what's keeping the White Walkers away.
0: So a mixture of all of it basically, the wall being so large, the magic, and the dragon glass.
1: Well, this is a brand new theory. We'd never heard anything before about them using dragon glass in the construction, that it's actually mixed in with the ice.
0: Well, I like the idea, but it's not like a vampire with the cross. I don't think they're afraid of it, as if like it could burn their skin if they touch it. I think it's just if they're stabbed with it.
1: But how do we really know the rules as of right now? I mean, perhaps they can't pass underneath it. We know that there are some rules with the wall, correct? Because... In order to get through, you have to be a Man of the Night's Watch or be with one. Remember that whole storyline when Sam was passing early on and Bran tried to get through the wall and he had to help him through because Bran wasn't a Man of the Night's Watch? No, I didn't. I mean, that has nothing to do with the White Walkers, but it does show that there's more happening here with this wall. It's not just a construction of ice. Now, this probably wouldn't have any effect on the Whites, the Risen Dead, but could certainly impact the White Walkers. And this brings me to our correction from the last podcast, which I want to do right at the top because it is important and it brings us into a couple of other theories. We had a bunch of listeners write in last time, including Joe, Matt, and Katie, to say we were wrong about the White Walkers only dying of Valyrian steel. They're also susceptible to dragonglass. They can be killed that way because on the show, Sam does kill a White Walker with dragonglass in season three.
0: Which is funny because we have said that in the past. And I think we just got confused because we were going over the book. And it had been a while. We have always said that they both would kill a White Walker. But in the books, Dragonglass would only wound them, not kill them.
1: Well, it could probably do both. We, we know that Dragonglass could kill White Walkers in the books as well. We were unsure about Valyrian steel. In the books. Just because... See, I'm
0: confused again. <laughs>
1: just, just because they didn't know in universe. Well, I figured out where the confusion was because I got a little lost here too. I knew there was a book difference somewhere and I couldn't figure out what it was. The difference was that in the books, on his way to Castle Black, when Sam is attacked, he's attacked by a white, a risen dead. This was a white walker on the TV. It was replaced with that. So I think this is what I was thinking of. Sam is attacked by this white while he's with Gilly. He stabs it with a dragonglass dagger, and the dagger just shatters to pieces. It doesn't do anything. He then tries stabbing the white with his steel dagger, but it just bounces off his iron mail. And it would hardly have mattered if he wasn't armored because it doesn't really affect them. We saw you could take their whole arm off and the arm would keep moving independently of them. Finally, desperately, Sam grabs a burning piece of wood and shoves it into the white's mouth. And this destroys him. Of course, they are then surrounded by a dozen whites and have to be saved by cold hands, which I can tell you now because we've seen them on the show. But it proves to us the same point, and this is true in books and TV universe that the whites, the risen dead, can't be harmed by dragon glass or Valyrian steel. Really, the only thing that does it for them is fire. Now, this is because there's nothing really special about these things; they're just dead bodies. Melisandre explains in the books. She says necromancy animates these whites, yet they are only dead flesh. Fire will serve for them. The ones you call others are something more. And so, of course, others are White Walkers on the show. And in both universes, we assume they can be killed by dragonglass and Valyrian steel because of how they were made. So what makes them strong and different is also sort of their kryptonite. Now, this is true for... The majority, we think, of White Walkers. They can be harmed by one of these two things. Although, there might be something different about the Night King himself. There's been a lot of theories floating around lately about this. This could have something to do with the armor that he wears. Now, I'm not sure. I have to go back and take a closer look to see if the other White Walkers wear similar armor to him. But he certainly seems to be armored way up to the neck. And he even has some things wrapped around his arms. So I wondered if this was some kind of protection against dragonglass and Valyrian steel that it can't get through the armor. Or maybe he's just resistant to both because he was the first White Walker created and he can't be killed by any of these methods, which I think would be very interesting and would fit right in with all the prophecies we've been talking about, that maybe the only thing that can do it for him is the sword Lightbringer. And of course, we talk a lot about the White Walkers, what their motivation could be I had a theory that we're going to come back to later on in the podcast, but part of this is figuring out where they come from and what their motivation is. George R.R. Martin hasn't given us much about that, but what he has said is that rather than being evil or undead, they are just simply very alien, a different form of life and intelligence whose motives and actions cannot be properly interpreted by humans. Which I think means they are there, we just don't get them yet. And I also think they're subscribing to a religion that we don't get yet.
0: And going back and rewatching that scene with Sam in the movie to make sure that we would be 100% correct when we corrected ourselves, I did notice, and I forgot about this, that that white walker was there to get the baby. He yeah. kicks Sam aside and starts ignore, just ignores him, starts walking towards the baby, just wants to grab the baby and go. He has no intention of turning Sam into a white, no intention of doing that to Gilly as well, which brings me back to the fact that this baby, or at least the babies that were being given to them from Craster, had a bigger meaning than the show has let us know so far. Yes, they showed us a clip of that one baby being turned into a white, but that's all they did. That's it. And I think with all the things that have happened in the last couple years in Game of Thrones, we forgot that and the importance of the baby. I don't know for sure, but I believe that this was the catalyst of the Night King forming his army to come past the Wall.
1: See, that's the one point I think I'm going to disagree with you on. I think they were forming the army and preparing to move south before the event started here on Game of Thrones, because we did see them kind of forming up, and one of the first scenes we got was of the risen dead forming that circle kind of closer south towards the wall. So I think they had plans, and I don't think their main mission coming south was to go after this baby, because I don't think this particular baby, as you said, is that important. In the books, maybe, because it was totally different. In fact, without going too far, it wasn't even Gilly's baby. But on the show, they haven't gotten too far into that. But I do think it is part of what they're after. I think you're right that they need to take these babies for some reason. Now, first of all, it's interesting that they only seem to take male children. We've never seen them take females. And I've heard people say before, oh, that's because Craster wanted to keep his females, his daughters, so that he could marry them and mate with them. But I think if White Walkers were demanding females, he would have no choice but to give them females. Yeah, He's giving them males because that's what they want.
0: Well, I think you're partially right. Yeah, I don't think it's that particular baby, but whatever situation they had going there, Crasters now dead, so mm. they no longer had that arrangement. What I disagree with you is you were saying it seems like they were starting to form the army beforehand because the whites, you saw them forming a circle. I think they're very religious. Mm. And what we were seeing is just their normal rituals. Okay. And the babies are part of that ritual.
1: See, I wasn't sure if the Whites, the Risen Dead, had anything to do with that. If they understood the deeper purpose, if they were connected to the religion. I was just kind of getting the idea that they were an army that did what the Walkers told them to do.
0: No, I don't think they have any understanding. I still think they were doing what the Walkers were telling them to do, but it was of a religious nature.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, definitely that seems to be part of it. A portion of that big theory I was spinning a while back that you and I were talking about, I think it got a little misconstrued along the way, so I want to back it up for a second. I think it made it sound like I was saying the dragons are the bad guys and the white walkers are the good guys.
0: No, I simplified it to that.
1: (laughs) Which, in trying to help people understand, we might have said that a little bit. But I I do think that's, that's way too simplified. What I was trying to say was... I believe there is an imbalance occurring in the world that for a long time, there was some kind of balance that had to be struck. And part of that had to do with this religion, if you want to call it that. It was way more evident in the books. We had a lot of talk about a ton of different religions that existed in this world, some of them more primary than others. The one that was mostly subscribed to in Westeros before people started coming over from Essos was that of the old gods. We see the Northmen still practicing that, where they worship to their heart trees that have bases carved into them. That was done by the children of the forest. But we don't know a lot about those gods and what that really means. The other one that's become prominent on the show is the Lord of Light. So, of course, there were others. There was the Drowned God that the Iron Islanders served. There was the Many-Faced God that we see Arya learning about at the House of Black and White. But these were the two really big ones that seemed to also get play on the TV show. So I think that you have the Lord of Light, which is like the Fire God and is perhaps linked into things like fire magic and perhaps responsible for the Birth of Dragons the ties that the Targaryens and the ancient Valyrians had to fire. And then I think you do have this opposing force that is a religion that somehow involves ice and that other side of it. And if one or the other gets a little too out of balance, they have to tip the scales a bit, and maybe that's what the White Walkers are about. So we'll come back later to how Jon could figure into all of that. But part of their religion does seem to be that they have to create new White Walkers every so often and can only do so using these babies in this ritualistic fashion. However, it is worthy to note that in the books, the Night King supposedly chased after a woman to be his queen, who wasn't identified as a White Walker, but her description matches them perfectly. It seems like she was one. According to the story, he eventually took her for his own. This raises the question, if there are female White Walkers out there, why would they need to take babies? But that might have been a red herring to confuse us because we haven't seen any on the TV show. So that was a really long speech about dragonglass, Valyrian steel, White Walkers, but I think it was important to come back to all this and get our heads wrapped around it. I think that as we get closer to the end game, these types of things that have mystical significance are going to become more and more important. Okay, Jason, we're going to get into our crow's eye view. And we're going to start off at the reach with Jamie and Bron washing up on the riverbank. Now, the only reason I come back here really is I know a lot of people had problems with the two of them being able to sort of make it out of this situation so easily. I do think it's a little strange that Danny didn't go back and look for them. Me too. But I don't think it's odd that the river carried them down pretty quickly. I think that... Jamie very clearly would have drowned if Braun wasn't there to help him. It appears as though Braun doesn't wear the same kind of super heavy armor that Jamie does. It looks more like a boiled leather type of situation. So maybe he's lighter underwater. And just the strength of the river spit them out onto the banks.
0: Yeah, but they're pretty far away. And the final scene in last week's episode was him drowning knocked out. So that means Braun would have had to swim all the way down there grabbed him, and carried him up while they were moving. And that's a lot of weight, a lot of heavy armor, soaking wet leather. Mm -hmm. It just... I don't know. There's a lot of things in this episode. It just felt like plot lines resolve themselves too easily to keep the plot going forward. We actually had one of our clatchers, Christopher, wrote in. He said, Can't wait to hear your podcast this week. Saw Sunday's episode. I thought that all of these plot lines coming together so nicely was way too easy. And then he also wrote... And we'll talk about this later. Did Sam's wifey basically read that Jon Snow was the legal son of Rhaegar? So that was just one of the reasons, one of the things where I know that they're limited now with episodes, Mm -hmm. even though there is rumor that next season, they're saying that every episode is like a two-hour movie.
1: Which I thought we were supposed to get this season too. And again, this episode was, I think, 59 minutes. So we're into... Episode five, and they, on the whole, haven't been that much longer. I just don't
0: see, especially in the Game of Thrones world, the one we've become accustomed to, the one based on George R. R. Martin's novels, that those two, by the magic of movie plots or TV plots, get away that easily and survive, and then he's still there, is still able to stand up and walk all the way back to King's Landing.
1: I agree, and we've talked about this before, that you and I don't like to get hung up on this stuff because we do like to be wrapped up in the fantasy. Our ability to suspend disbelief is pretty strong. For sure. (laughs) I know, as opposed to other viewers. And getting into the last couple of seasons, we do want it to pick up momentum. This is the time where you can kind of get rid of the rules a little bit, fast pace things a bit, because we don't want to have to get bogged down in those details. I think the problem is in places where maybe it doesn't need to be done. So here, I think, had we lost Braun in last episode or beginning of this, maybe it would have felt more believable. And I'm wondering, as much as I love him, why we didn't. Does he still serve some greater story to the plot line than I can't really imagine yet? Uh, could be.
0: Yeah, I mean... He does because without Braun, who's there to keep Jamie's love betrayed mind in check?
1: Who's there to facilitate the meeting between him and Tyrion? That as well. And I still think he's going back over to Tyrion's side soon enough.
0: But anyways, I'm not gonna keep harping on that the whole episode.
1: No, we're gonna say it that once and then Yeah, we move understand off it. that
0: there was a lot of things that was definitely not George R. R. Martin like especially the main storyline that has been revealed to us at the end of this episode.
1: You're talking about the catch-a-white plan? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what really got us, and that's what I mean. When you start to hit at the core of characters changing for the sake of plot, or these major, major storylines, that's where it gets us. We can deal with the geography, the details, uh, the timing of things, perhaps not making sense, but a big thing like that is what catches our attention. We just wanted to put this in there for people who are having problems with it to say that we notice it and we see that it does occur in these situations. So it's understandable if it's pulling you out of it, but we're going to try to focus on the things we appreciated from this episode.
0: If they had 10 episodes, I think they would have been able to navigate this a little better.
1: 100%. Next, we're going to move on to where Danny assembled the captured men and gave them a choice.
0: So we described this scene last episode. If you missed our instant coffee, definitely check that out. And I talked about how much I love the dragon, so I won't do that again to you guys. But let's talk about Tyrion and let's talk about Danny.
1: Because Randall brings up a really good point that we didn't discuss last time. Part of what Tyrion was so worried about with Danny coming over was her image, how she was going to be viewed by the people. And he's still afraid that if she continues to rule this way, or to conquer this way rather, she won't be able to have their support. They're only going to see her as a foreign invader. And I think Tyrion is really taken aback when Randall doesn't decide to switch sides for Danny. kind of saying, what allegiance do you have to Cersei? Look at what happened with Lady Olena. But he tells him Tyrion murdered his own father and chose to support this foreign invader with an army of savages. So we know... That Danny is different from her father, different from the Mad King and trying to make rational choices. But in the eyes of the people, she's still coming in with dragons burning people up. It doesn't look any different.
0: No, it doesn't. But let's take it from Danny's point of view. She's giving them the option to either bend the knee or go up in flames. First of all, what other options would you have her give?
1: I think those are correct. And I don't think you have time to really play around as she said and take tons of men and lock them in a cell. And as much as I agree that Tyrion's clever plans have not worked out so far and maybe are a little too clever for his own good, the one good thing I thought he brought up here was continuing with certain customs we have in place. That's a way of saying, I respect and understand what you do here. And an option to redeem yourself and save your life has always been, you can bend the knee, you can die, Or if you want to live, you can take the black. And now more than ever, we need people joining the Night's Watch to fight this army. I would have liked if she gave that option. Now, I know Randall said no to that. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm not taking the black anyway. But what about the other guys?
0: I agree with you on that. Also, the way she has the respect of her current army is that she gave them the option. They can go on their way. Yeah. So do you think she could have said that to them? Or you're in the middle of war, so you can't really do that.
1: Maybe not, and how are you going to know they're not just running back to Cersei, I suppose? Right. But she is coming down on a harder line than she ever used to, and it's, it's going to win their fear, but will it make them respect her?
0: Now, when it comes to Randall Tarly, which is what really threw Tyrion off, she has no other option. Once he said no, and then said no to the Black, what is she going to do? Say, all right, well, never mind, we'll just chain him up. She, at that point, she has to follow through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that Randall was a good opportunity to just make a point. But now I think you need to back off of that. You've made the point, And she is doing so in this episode.
0: Well, she's backing off of a lot of things she said. Yeah. No more clever plans.
1: Yeah. I, I am readily admitting she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. But I think she kind of went half in here. She decided to go after Cersei instead of just join up with John and go north in the first place. She had this battle, but now she's backing off to go up north. It feels a little indecisive. Like, if I'm Cersei, I'm thinking I see an opportunity here to seize on what may be a weakness. And I do think if this weakness for John continues, you can bet that there are going to be people that exploit that between the two of them. Well, you're talking about Cersei... So let's just go over to her in King's Landing because Jamie returns to tell her about this. They can't win this battle. I just saw the Dothraki fight.
2: They'll beat any mercenary army. They'll beat any army I've ever seen. Killing our men wasn't war for them. It was sport. Her dragon burnt a thousand wagons. Kyber and Scorpion, fired bolts bigger than you. They couldn't stop it. And she has three of them.
0: This isn't a war we can
1: win. And then we see him go to this secret meeting with Tyrion that Bronn has helped orchestrate and Davos helped smuggle him in so he could get him there. There's not a lot to say about this and I really thought that the Tyrion-Jamie meeting was going to be a little bit more impactful. Uh, Tyrion starts to try to get into the emotion of it, the fact that he killed his father and explain himself, but Jamie just shuts that right down. They don't have that heart-to-heart or even argument that I, I sort of thought we were going to get.
0: I'm having trouble talking about this because I don't feel Tyrion should be there. I don't feel this whole thing is a good move.
1: A good idea. Yeah. No, <laughs> no it's not.
0: In what GOT world would you think that you can trust Cersei on anything?
1: No, and I don't even think he has that much goodwill with Jamie, and that's what I mean. It was evidenced in this very scene. Now, mistake after mistake, when does Tyrion come to the realization that A, his plans aren't working out too good, and B... Maybe he doesn't know his family as well as he thought he did, or at least they know him equally well and are able to anticipate his moves and outsmart him to some degree.
0: I was expecting Tyrion to open up the conversation with a clever quip. Hmm. Something like, in a cavalier and sarcastic way, riding a horse right into a dragon, huh? Or something like that, you know?
1: Something like what Bronn said earlier? You did see the dragon between her and you, didn't exactly. you?
0: Exactly. Now, I'm kind of jumping ahead and jumping behind. In our instant coffee episode, I had said, how did Bronn even find out that Tyrion wanted him to bring him Jaime in the basement? And of course, it's an instant coffee. We just finished watching it. I started to think about it. I started to think about the fact that Cersei knew what happened later when she talks to Jaime. And it's because, obviously, a raven was sent to Bronn. And obviously, Cersei's people read it first, then let it pass through. And she was aware that it was going on.
1: But there you go again. Wouldn't Tyrion have known that? In this very episode, he's talking to Varys about intercepting Jon Snow's right. scroll. <laughs> he knows that shit happens. But again, I don't want to get hung up on that. Let's go over to what's happening between Jamie and Cersei. Because that's really the whopper for King's Landing this episode, right? Her telling Jamie that the reason they have to keep fighting is that she's pregnant again. Now, we had said last time we were pretty sure that she wasn't pregnant, that this was a power move for her over Jamie, because she realized that maybe Jamie was finally caving a little bit and about to start listening to the idea of peace that Tyrion was putting forth because yeah. they can't win. And her ending words to him saying, never betray me again, like got you on the hook. But we got a really great Clatcher's comment in about this that gives perhaps some other ideas. Michael wrote in to say, can Cersei even have a fourth child? We know about the prophecy from Maggie the Frog. If she isn't lying, then she would only have three children. So could this mean that she dies during childbirth the same way that her mother did? The thing is, in the second part of that prophecy, it also claims... She will be killed by the little brother, which we were all thinking was Jamie, even though very early on that seems to indicate Tyrion. But so much so that it can't possibly be true, right? Well,
0: maybe if she is pregnant, they end up going on Jerry
1: for a paternity test. Yep. why? We who finds, finds out do you it's not his,
0: it and he's the one, that, and Jamie kills her.
1: <laughs> it's your aunt's?
0: The baby is not yours.
1: Well, so (laughs) I think that's a really good point, that if that prophecy stands, she cannot have a fourth child, which means either A, she's not pregnant, or B, she loses that child. Now, I guess it is entirely possible when we were kind of doing the math, maybe the reason she attacked Jamie last time to get him into bed was this was already part of her plan, to get pregnant, to keep him on her side.
0: It could be that Cersei tries something when they do meet, finally. And Danny has her killed. But then that wouldn't be the prophecy. Right. You
1: know? No, that could be too, that she just dies before she's ever able to give birth to this child. Right. That's another possibility. There's also that weird thing. And our clatchers wrote in too to say, wasn't Kyburn giving her some type of potion when he hurriedly fled out of the room when Jamie came in? And I thought he was handing her something, but I couldn't quite make that out. Now, if that is true, he did a similar thing back in season four where he was there to give her medication for some unspecified symptoms mm. that in the books we always assumed was related to her heavy drinking, a way to manage that. But maybe it is related to this pregnancy. And I don't know if that was to help her get pregnant or to help stop the pregnancy, but it could play in later on.
0: Let's also talk about the fact that she wants Jamie to punish Bron. Daenerys
2: wants to meet.
0: To discuss her surrender.
2: To discuss an armistice.
0: She's just won a great victory. Why would you want a truce now?
2: Because an army of dead men is marching on the Seven Kingdoms. Tyrion claims he'll have proof.
0: Are you going to punish him? Tyrion. Bronn.
2: He betrayed you.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell if she was serious about that or if she was just making the point that she knew what had gone down here and that Bronn figured into... No, I think
0: she was serious if she even thinks Jaime betrayed her.
1: Well, if he catches wind that she's not liking it, this could be the thing that prompts Bronn to go back over to Tyrion as we kind of anticipated.
0: Yeah, and maybe Bronn's the one that tells Tyrion Cersei's gonna do something tricky if you do... Go along with your genius plan.
1: He could have some inside information to offer. That would be really cool. Maybe that is the big point left to his storyline. But we have to go to, I guess, the most important moment, which is where Davos finds Gendry in the blacksmith shop. And Gendry has a line here that I think was easily overlooked. He said he's tired of making weapons for the family that killed his father. Despite the fact that he never met him or really had a relationship with him, Gendry has a lot of allegiance to Robert Baratheon. Hmm. And we see that partially in the fact that he carries a warhammer as his weapon of choice, much the way his father used to. So I know a lot of people have been bringing it up, but we have to mention it here. This is jumping forward a little, but it, it fits into what we're talking about. Later on, when Gendry and John meet each other, they're having this sort of bro moment together. Gendry tells him he's Robert's bastard son and their dads used to be...
0: Respect each other and...
1: Yeah, they used to be buddies, they fought together, so so should they. In the meantime, the irony is, us as listeners know that Jon's real father is Rhaegar Targaryen. So in reality, Gendry's father, Robert, killed Jon's father during the Battle of the Trident.
0: With a hammer...
1: With a war hammer that smashed in, caved in his breastplate. So I don't know if that's going to make any difference, if it's even a point that's going to come up eventually or something that Gendry would feel any kind of way about. But I thought you don't throw in a line here about his continuing devotion to his father if it doesn't come back into the story later.
0: Well, yeah, but also you had spoken about in the cave when the White Walker was stabbed, but he was stabbed in his chestplate, his armor. And it shattered the glass, the dragon glass, mm-hmm. right? So we we're saying that armor protects them, but in talking about how Rhaegar was killed with a similar hammer that Gendry's using, that might be the key. He maybe he shatters their chest plate, and then someone can come in with the dragon glass and stab them.
1: Yeah, that was my big idea. That I don't think you bring Gendry in after being gone so long just to have unnecessary animosity between him and Jon. It may come up as a little tiff the way we're seeing that happen in other areas. Uh, Torment is momentarily upset that Jora is a Mormont and there's bad blood between them. That happened all over the place, but it didn't come to anything. Everybody's willing to say at the end of the day, we're on the same team here. So I think if it does, it'll be a blip on the radar. But yes, the bigger thing would be Gendry's abilities. We saw how badass he was with that Warhammer. And again, that was probably there for a reason. So, yeah, what if they need him to destroy this armor the Night King's wearing with his hammer so somebody like Jon can swoop in with a sword like Lightbringer and take him out once and for all? If not that, there's been speculation that Gendry's abilities as a blacksmith could come in handy. Do we need to forge or reforge Valyrian steel at some point? And the only person you have around that might be capable, not that he knows how to do it now, but maybe he could learn, is Gendry. So, thank you to our Clatcher Bethany for writing in about the significance of the Warhammer and getting us thinking about that. Have a in Dragonstone, we get this great interaction finally where Danny introduces, if you want to call it that, John to Drogon.
0: Now, we talked about how much I love the dragon, so we'll spare you on that again.
1: <laughs> we did say that it seemed the dragon sensed something in John, maybe his Targaryen blood. Yes. And was able to form that connection with him.
0: Well, they showed that he sniffed him and then kind of opened up. Before he sniffed him, you saw the teeth. That was awesome. One of our listeners, I think they took what I was saying the wrong way. I was giving the analogy that Drogon kind of looked like one of your pets, like your dogs when you're petting them and domesticated. I didn't really, it was probably a bad analogy. I just meant that Drogon was very open to him. And actually when he was being pet for lack of a better word, the way his eyes looked, there was no sense of insecurity, no sense of worry or anything.
1: Yeah, clearly we don't think that the dragon is domesticated. Maybe the better analogy is meeting a dog for the first time and that interaction you have. Meeting any beast for the first time, and John calls him that later, right? I think the point here to bring up is that in the novels, it was thought only those of Targaryen bloodline could successfully bond with a dragon. So there's almost no way that could happen unless it was within Jon. And I think it's only the very first small step of seeing that forged. Now, I don't want to lose sight along the way. We're learning a lot of things lately, and they're really great revelations that are bringing up the point of Jon's Targaryen background. What more we're going to find out about him. I think this is only... The second part of the puzzle, it's important because of what it means for his bloodlines and things it could do for him, like being able to bond with a dragon. Maybe it's important because that represents the fire side of ice and fire living within him. But he still very much has that ice side, right? He's still as much of a Stark as ever, even if Ned's not his biological father. Lyanna Stark was, and I think that's why all the references in the books to... Arya and John looking so similar. People always said that Arya was like Lyanna Stark Jr. She looked like her, she acted like her, and Catelyn, part of the reason she hated John so much, not just because Ned came back from the war with a bastard son, but the fact that he looked more like Ned than her true-born children, than Robin Sansa who had that distinctly Tully look as opposed to the Stark look. So I think that Old blood very much runs through Arya and Jon, and maybe that's what brings that bond between the two of them a little bit as well.
0: And also, and I think I said this before, the importance of this scene is to set up the next scene with Danny and the council, or what's left of it, and showing how smitten she is for Jon. And I think this was that last scene that they had together two episodes ago, I think. They had a great talk one-on-one. They started to learn to respect each other. Then both of them separately started to learn stories about each other that made them respect each other more. Then we had the cave scene, and then this is the final one. Even her dragons sense how good of a man he is.
1: Here's the question this brings up for a lot of people, though. Will that be enough if we get a wedge at some point? So John leaves now. She clearly has some growing affection for him, but it's a little new and awkward still. Maybe she's not 100% sure if she can trust him. This whole bend the knee thing is maybe still a little bit of an issue. She concedes by the time he leaves, and he says, well, if I don't come back, you won't have to worry about this King in the North business anymore. She says, I was growing used to him. <laughs> but if it comes to light anytime in the near future that he is in fact a Targaryen and possibly the more rightful heir to the throne, and that'll come up in the Sam and Gilly scene, are we just going to go right back to the beginning where they're split apart because technically... Even if he doesn't want it, John has more of a claim to that throne than she has been sure of her entire life. What she thought was her fate and her destiny. And she's willing to do all of this to get that thing that she was meant to rule.
0: I don't believe that's even going to come up. I I think in the end, and even George R. R. Martin said it's going to be a bittersweet ending.
1: One of them's not making it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's her.
1: Yeah, I agree. And. Again, I was kind of going back and forth with one of our clatchers about this, that I think how much it affects their relationship depends on when that comes out. If they had had time to establish the trust enough and then she finds out it might not matter because she'll realize he doesn't really want to rule anyway. But what I didn't get to was that I do think it's all a moot point. I agree with you. I think Danny will eventually be the one that has to die. And that's maybe not a popular sentiment, but we'll get there. All right, Jason, this is the part where we have to bring up the perhaps ill-advised catch-a-white scheme that's happening.
0: Well, they have a council. Tyrion comes up with this plan, the worst plan he's ever came up with, and everyone just falls in line.
1: When are they going to start saying, Tyrion, we love you, man, but how many strikes is this now?
0: Listen, I don't think there was many flaws in his original plan this season.
1: Which one?
0: (laughs) Well, the... The way she was supposed to conquer Cersei and splitting the armies and all those factions. I think that was a good plan. And by the way, has she just forgotten about her boys? This is off topic, but...
1: The Unsullied? Yeah. No, I don't think she's forgotten about them. They don't know where to find them. But I'm a little surprised there's no talk about looking for them. I I don't know. It's weird.
0: Take a dragon. Go over there. Be like, you guys good? All right, go such and such. We'll meet. I'll bring
1: some ships. I know. She's not afraid to fly a dragon directly into battle at a scorpion, but she can't take him on a scouting mission. She couldn't have maybe taken him north with Jon.
0: I think by the end of this season or maybe next season, we see them coming. And it's like, yes, they're back, you know?
1: Yeah, but coming back to what you were saying about Tyrion, (laughs) I do think there were flaws in his plan. I know you love him, and I do too but the flaw of underestimating his siblings' intelligence and the fact that they know Tyrion as well as he knows them. Mm. And perhaps there was a time for advice such as Tyrion's. When the realm was being ruled the same way it always was, Tyrion was the best man for this job. He knew everything about the kingdom, how to play the Game of Thrones, how to do it right and honorably, but maybe a little sneaky when it has to be done. This brave new world they're entering into, I don't know that Tyrion has that same kind of guidance to offer her.
0: So you're saying he's using an encyclopedia while everyone else is using Google?
1: I think they're creating their very own rule book here. They're throwing everything they used to know and used to matter out the window, and it's Her trying to kind of go at it from both ends that's creating problems. She's half trying to be the old type of ruler that would win the hearts and minds of the people and half trying to be the fierce conqueror that needs to break the wheel and face the army of the undead. She can't be half and half. And if she's going to go for it, that means listening to herself and listening to John, and maybe not using Tyrion's plans anymore.
0: So let's talk about this plan. We're going to take many of your favorite characters. We're going to send them right back to the northern part of the wall.
1: Without backup. There's no wildling contingent. There's no send a couple men from the army to help. There's no dragon. There's no nothing. It's just all of our best men being put out on what feels like a suicide mission.
0: Just to find proof. Just to, to, to bring proof.
1: find proof for Cersei. Now, I know people were saying... This was partly for Danny as well, but I don't think that's why John's doing it. I don't think that's why the group's doing it. Danny's already coming over to their side, and she doesn't really need to see a white to prove that. Mm-hmm. It's mostly for Cersei, hoping that she will get off this plan to attack them and they won't have to worry about battling her at the same time they fight the dead.
0: Right. Also, in the past seasons, when we had 10 episodes, episode nine was always the most epic episode of the season. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming, and I know what happens when you assume, but this is probably going to be the most epic episode. Yeah. Next episode, right? So yes, this does provide an opportunity for TV to have an awesome battle that is going to be a spectacle. And we're going to come on the podcast. We're going to say, that was amazing.
1: Is this the one you expected for season seven, Penultimate?
0: No, the I didn't small expect. small
1: group of men ranging north. This feels a lot like... I
0: thought we learned our lesson when we were back at Hard Home. Oh shit, these guys are legit and we need an army to we face these. We don't mess people. around with them. Yeah. yeah.
1: It feels a little like the Fist of the First Men, a small contingent out there on their own or even a little bit like Hard Home. I don't it feels like reverse at this point instead of moving forward. I expected the first epic stand at Eastwatch. Mhm. With a bunch of wildlings and maybe some of our men leading the charge against the first wave of the undead to come against the wall. I expected maybe seeing that magic of the wall broken and them getting through to the kingdom by the end of this season. Holy shit, the long night has come. Now, I'm not saying all of that can't happen, but it's a weird way to get there if this is the entry point.
0: And we know we're going to lose many of our favorite seven characters, right? We're going to lose... Jon Snow is going to survive.
1: Are we going to lose many... We haven't lost anybody of importance this whole season. When I thought it was just going to be a slaughter fest.
0: Yeah. So this is their way of doing it.
1: I don't know. I don't. Maybe we won't lose as many as we think. We definitely have to lose a few.
0: We're going to lose the Brotherhood. All of them. Yeah. There's three, right?
1: There's three. But three we seven. we talked about how we thought Thoros had to stick around because he might still have to bring somebody else back to life. Right. Uh, as much as everybody loves the Hound, I don't know what his greater storyline is anymore. We thought there might be a last meeting between him and Arya, but barring that, it is kind of wrapping up for him. He's had his redemption. Berrick has come back to life plenty of times. I could see the two of them going.
0: Benjamin's going to show up. We'll lose him. He'll die saving Jon Snow.
1: Die for real this time?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> he's been ready to die. Well, he's so already
1: this- half dead. Yeah.
0: If you guys don't remember Benjen.
1: That their uncle, who used to be part of the Night's Watch, that we found out was one character who started to be turned into a White Walker and was saved by the Children of the Forest.
0: He helped Bran get back to the wall. And also his name was used to bring Jon Snow out of his room when he was a Night's Watch to be stabbed.
1: As a ploy. Yep. Yeah. Cold hands in the book, we think.
0: So next week, when we talk about these scenes, I'm no longer going to say this was a bad idea. This was a bad plan. I'm saying it now. It's
1: out of the way. (laughs) It's
0: out of the way. I don't like the way this was set up. It will be great TV visually. As I said to you a couple episodes ago, I don't think we're going to see a lot of the whites because at this point, all you see is them marching. Yeah. And they're not talking. And when the Night King speaks, he's going to have a high voice, squeaky voice
1: can i can i ask realistically did they have a plan for how to capture a white right because number one they mostly travel in packs right number two it doesn't look like they're taking any equipment like a cage or something that would trap him up that they could transport back
0: there was something behind them like a sled oh there was you couldn't see them when they were doing their epic walkout to End the episode, there was some people behind them, and it looked like some kind of sled, maybe a it's couple just of rations. randos. I saw those yeah. guys, yeah. So, I don't know what's in there a mouse trap? I don't know, I really don't know.
1: Well, I was thinking, could you pull some walking dead stunt where you cut off Their its arms? arms and legs so it can't come at you? We know they still live through that and then just tie them up.
0: But do they need just a white, or do they need a white walker?
1: I think just a white because that's what they said they were after, okay? A white to show that the dead are being reanimated. I don't think they could dare hope to get a White Walker. Now, it's worth pointing out inside the episode, the showrunners admit the White Hunt is a TV invention. They came up with it. It's not based on events from a future novel.
0: Then George R. R. Martin chimed in and said, yeah, I'd be a little more clever with this one.
1: No, he didn't.
0: No, he didn't. (laughs)
1: Um, They also said that it's loosely based on the events we spoke of where Alistair Thorne was sent to King's Landing with the severed hand of the White that tried to kill old Bear Mormont.
0: Did you bring this up last episode or did we just chat about it?
1: I said I thought that it happened, but I couldn't remember the specifics of it. Okay. And so, yeah, it was correct that the hand rotted away to nothing by the time he was given an audience so they didn't believe him. Along those lines, another of our clatchers, Michael, wrote in to say he thinks Beric is the most likely to not make it back from the north. It seems like his flaming sword needs to be in the hands of a more important character, and could this be the way to make that happen? And we will come back around to the swords later. That's a possibility. I think we all agree Beric is top on the list of people that will probably get taken out. I was thinking Gendry last time, but the more we're talking about this warhammer of his, I think he's coming out of there okay. I was also feeling pretty bad about Jorah until my sister wrote in with a theory about him. And she said, don't we need to see Jorah wind up back with Longclaw? Because Longclaw was originally the Mormont house sword that Jor gave to Jon. Now, I don't know exactly how that would transpire. And that would mean Jon need to have another sword at this point. But if it's Beric's sword, or if it's one half of Ned's sword, maybe he gets his hands on Oathkeeper eventually. Something that can turn into Lightbringer. Maybe he doesn't need Longclaw anymore. Would be kind of cool to see Jorah with that, but I don't know if that really plays in. But she also said her theory is that it's Jorah that will need to fulfill the Azor high prophecy. So the one where he needs to make the great sacrifice in order to forge Lightbringer we went through a lot of theories. It could be Jamie that kills Cersei. Top contender still, maybe Jon might have to kill Danny. But she's saying maybe Jorah has to kill Danny Because the story goes that the man loved her more than any man had ever loved another woman. And certainly, Jorah loves Danny more than anything that we've ever seen on this show. It would be the ultimate sacrifice if he had to kill her. But why would he have to? I don't know. And I still kind of think if anybody has to kill her, it's Jon. And not till much later on, but in order to forge Lightbringer and kind of become that embodiment that I was talking about as both. And I'm also starting to think you're right that Jon has to die again. Because as we were saying, if you look at these two parts of Fire and Ice, he has it in his lineage as a Stark and a Targaryen. But I thought there had to be more to that for him to become it. So he's died once already and been brought back by the power of Relor, the Lord of Light. George even said he's a fire white, quote unquote. If he dies a second time and is brought back through some kind of old magic or ice magic, now he's half an ice white as well. He is living ice and fire.
0: Yeah. I I did say that there's a lot of theories that we have said in the past that may still come true. If you're just joining us either last episode or last week and you have time to fill, I would go back and listen to all of this season's podcasts that we have.
1: Going back to the season six recap and seven prepper because we get a lot into theory there, too. So, that was an interesting theory about Jorah. I don't really know if I subscribe to it. If he doesn't have a point like that remaining, I also think he could be in trouble on this mission as a likely candidate. And, of course, you have to consider Tormund in this as well, as somebody that could die. Now, people have brought up a good point that Tormund is really our only link to the Wildlings. There's nobody left alive that we know that we can put a face on who's part of the Wildlings, but does that really matter anymore? Is that enough plot armor to keep him alive? I don't I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. There was also a question about if Davos had gone with them. I can't remember who wrote in to ask this. I'm sorry. I'm almost 100% sure they left him behind at the wall because I remember him saying I'd be a liability beyond the wall. So they would yes, bring him as far as Eastwatch but leave him at He's the castle. He's not a fighter. Right.
0: Yeah. Why couldn't they have Bran warg into some kind of badass animal? and help them out.
1: You know, there's a lot of powers that were more talked about in the books that we don't see as much on the show, and warging is certainly one of them. There was a story about an offbeat kind of character, and I won't get into it here, but he had really crazy warging abilities and could go into a lot of different kinds of animals. The thing is that most people that warg have to do it with one kind of creature, something they already have a bond with. So a child like one of the Stark kids who had a direwolf could warg into their direwolf but nobody else. But Bran you've got to think has powers like that that he could warg into. We see him going into a flock of ravens this episode.
0: Ravens, his wolf Hodor. Hodor?
1: Which we never seen somebody go into human.
0: Even if he just did a raven, he could be the lookout for them. And he could well, how would he talk to him though? To say that there's a white walker over there or something. He could call. So they,
1: they can say a cute few words. That was actually another point in the books more prominently that they spoke. And some of the times some of the ravens were speaking, you thought it was Bran warging into them and talking through them. So oh, wow. It's funny okay. you bring that up. Now, there was this scene with Bran and the ravens. And for a minute, I was wondering if he was pulled out of the warging because he was scared but then I changed my mind and thought it's the Night King looking at him that kind of casts him out.
0: No, he for sure cast him out.
1: That that allows him to not be able to warg anymore into them.
0: No, not anymore. He just kind of pushed him out. Right? For that
1: moment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We know that he has green sight, the Night King. We know that he's marked Bran so he can sense Bran. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he sensed him in those. And even before he marked him, he could sense him. But just not as quickly. Remember, it took him a while. When Bran was... Uh, this, is, this whole thing set it off. Remember when the OG Three-Eyed Raven was sleeping? Everyone was sleeping in the cave. Mm-hmm. And Bran went in by himself, walked through a huge crowd of whites, got to the White Walkers, and then the Night King slowly turns his head. And then Bran turns around, brings his back to the Night King, and now all the whites are staring at him. Yeah, they turned around. They're
1: aware of him now. So I don't think he can do that is the point he can't work into something cool to help us because the Night King's too on alert for that now. But we definitely thought we'd be seeing a lot more with Bran's powers and capabilities in helping out with this. Right now, it's just fragmented visions that he can't do much with.
0: I wish Bran had the power to manipulate elements, like weather or, you know, the heat or something. (laughs) Maybe he could fight them with the sun or something.
1: (laughs) Some kind of elemental powers. I want to go back to just one more moment at Dragonstone before we move on. As this group is assembled to leave, so Danny is having this tough time. She's got to say goodbye to both Jorah and Jon. And after she gives him that line about growing used to him, he says to her, I wish you good fortune in the wars to come, your grace. Now, this is a line that has been repeated a couple of times in the Game of Thrones universe. We were just talking about Uncle Benjen. He said it to Bran and Mira before he left them at the heart tree by the wall. In Bran's vision that he had of young Ned Stark at the Tower of Joy, Sir Arthur Dayne said it to Ned Stark. And we've heard Melisandre say it to some of our characters before, too. The fact that it's being repeated over and over, do you think it's just to emphasize the message that there is a bigger battle to come? Or is it some kind of omen?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I hope it's not an omen or a negative omen.
1: Because it was preceding some pretty bad events. I mean, Ned coming to the Tower of Joy certainly wasn't a great thing, although it was kind of a revelation at the same time. Brandon Mira crossing the wall, still questionable as to whether that had big effects or not. So just something to keep in mind if we see it repeated again by other characters. Who is it said to and what happens after that?
0: Hey, as you were just talking, I was still go- running through my head how they could capture a white. <laughs> could they use fire on the ground to like trap one white?
1: Oh, a circle yeah. of fire. They'd have to be careful not to catch the white.
0: Oh, true. And then how are they yeah. going to get them not out? Not to
1: light it on fire. I mean, because they're they seem to be very susceptible to fire. Nothing else really touches them, but that will do it. And that seems to be the way to battle them. So why don't they have... Like fire arrows Flaming torches, yeah, yeah, fire arrows. What is the matter with them? They're not prepared at all.
0: Seriously, I would have been like, Danny, can I borrow one of your dragons, please?
1: You got three. I only need one.
0: We just wreak havoc and just blow fire. Because they don't have bows. These are just walkers, right? They don't have weapons.
1: I don't even know if they can operate. I, I think they have... Maybe daggers and spears, simple weapons. Okay. I don't think they could shoot a bow and arrow or do anything super complex. Danny
0: comes down, torches the land of all the whites. Not the White Walkers. We know that's going to be more difficult. right? The army of the dead. And then leaves one, right? And then they can grab that one.
1: At that point, why do they even need one? If you're going, just burn them all. You burn them all. Our seven men all get their hands on Valyrian steel blades. You we, sound like the Mad King. We know we know that that does it for the White Walkers. So while she's torching the Whites, the seven key men go with their swords, head-to-head head against the White Walkers, take them out simultaneously. Enough of this every time. I've been saying it a lot. Every time you half-heartedly fight them and keep losing people, that adds to their army of the dead takes away from our good people. I think we need to stop playing around and just forge one good push at them that's well thought out. Okay, we have two more locations to discuss. The first is Winterfell because we didn't really talk about it a lot last time. We see Santa holding council with the lords, who are unhappy about their absent king. Arya watches as Sansa does nothing to rebuke Lord Glover for questioning whether Sansa might be the better ruler. She tells them John is doing what he thinks is best. Privately, Arya pointedly notes to Sansa that she always liked nice things because they made her feel better than everyone. She also notices that she took their parents' chambers. She knows that Sansa is already planning for the eventuality of John not returning and her being ruler. So even if Sansa doesn't know she's thinking it, Arya does. But Sansa rebuts with Arya's way of dealing things is not good either. She says, I'm sure cutting off heads is very satisfying, but that's not the way you get people to work together.
0: I think they're both right on this. But also, I think this is all moot because they're not going to kill each other. Arya is not going to kill Sansa. Sansa's not going to have Arya get killed.
1: No, it's not about that. It's the fact that this is Littlefinger's plan. Right? It's to destabilize, get them fighting, so there's a power vacuum and he can step in and influence one of them.
0: Chaos is a ladder, of course.
1: Well, after From the Shadows, Arya spies Littlefinger's secret meetings and him being delivered a scroll from Maester Lewin's archives. This prompts Arya to break into his chambers and discover the scroll hidden in his mattress.
0: Now, we've been saying we wanted Arya to go north because this is what we thought she'd be doing. Right?
1: We thought she'd actually be outsmarting him or better than that, actually killing him. Turns out he's outsmarting her because he's watching her the whole time. By the way, if you're wondering what that scroll said, this is in fact the letter that Sansa wrote to Rob back in season one, which is what we had thought where she was being coerced to tell her family to surrender under that pressure of Queen Cersei. So she writes, Rob, I write to you with a heavy heart. Our good King Robert is dead, killed from wounds he took in a boar hunt. Father has been charged with treason. He conspired with Robert's brothers against my beloved Joffrey and tried to steal his throne. The Lannisters are treating me very well and provide me with every comfort. I beg you, come to King's Landing, swear fealty to King Joffrey, and prevent any strife between the great houses of Lannister and Stark.
0: Now, Middlefinger was there when she was forced to write that.
1: Middle finger? Yep. <laughs> um, thank you to the Clatcher also that sent us that note on Twitter.
0: Here's the deal. This is, I don't believe that this is going to turn into an all out fight. I think maybe Littlefinger has her mind right now, but we haven't seen her grow this much just for her to be fooled by this thing. I think maybe she talks to Sansa about it and Sansa explains that. Or. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with this, but a friend of mine, Mello, he keeps telling me that Ario is playing him. So he's playing her, but she knows that he's playing her and he's, she's playing him. <laughs> and that she's aware of this and she's going through the steps and she's going to be the one to kill him. My next sentence would be about the little bit we saw, the preview of next episode. So I'll, I'll wait for the end. But that's what he feels.
1: I know a lot of people subscribe to that theory. And I don't mean to get down on Sansa. I don't know that I give her that much credit. I do think maybe she has been playing him in other regards throughout this season and she has learned in the scheming. But I think when it comes to Arya, it's still very raw and emotional. I think she's acting from a reactionary place.
0: For sure, but I don't think that'll last.
1: No, but how much damage can it do in the meantime before they come to their senses is really the question, because all Littlefinger needs is a little opening.
0: True. I just don't want to see Arya make a stupid mistake like this.
1: I don't think she's going to go at Sansa in any way. I think the biggest fear is that she winds up leaving to continue along with her original goal, leaving Sansa alone there for Littlefinger to continue to maybe manipulate. But then that's also forgetting about Bran. I know that he hasn't done a lot to help in this situation yet, but he is able to see certain things and maybe he can intercede eventually when they need it. Okay, and let's talk about our last location of Old Town. We already discussed the Maester meeting that Sam tried to influence. Seems like he failed. Maybe a little bit of influence that will continue on with Archmaester Ebros. And then the big event back in their room where... Sam misses the bombshell that Gilly drops on him. The line from the book that says, Maynard says he issued an annulment to Prince Rhaegar and remarried him to someone else at the same time in a secret ceremony in Dorne. Firstly, I really like this comment that we got from Anne-Marie who says, I think the internet is too hard on Sam for not hearing Gilly about the annulment. It would mean nothing to him since he doesn't know about Bran's visions of the Tower of Joy or Jon's true parentage. Hashtag cuts him a break, LOL. (laughs) And I agree, it didn't have any reason to resonate with him in that moment, as frustrated as we might be watching it. But I think one of them might pick up on it later. I don't know if it's going to be Sam that remembers it or if it'll be Gilly. April wrote in to say, Gilly is just reading facts and stats, supposedly, but she might have a mind for detail. Not long after her lengthy regurgitation of facts about steps and windows and shits, she flawlessly corrects Sam about the number of steps. This girl has a steel trap mind and will pull the knowledge out that we'd like to hear when it's needed. I think it will be her and not Sam who makes the connection later on. And that's a good point that we did say, even if Sam didn't bring that book with him, one of them will have that in the back of their minds. All it takes is for the conversation to come up, somebody to say that Rhaegar is Jon's father, for them to remember this line. Right. Now, they won't have hard evidence if they don't have the book with them that the annulment took place, but is that really going to matter if we all now know that that's Jon's true parentage? Are they going to need it written down? And if they do, it'll still be at the Citadel.
0: I believe a lot more happened in these scenes that we just aren't aware of yet, or at least that will perpetuate the storyline later on. When the maesters were talking, they brought up the Drowned God... And we've been talking about the Drowned God, not knowing if that's part of the TV show. So that's right there. They're saying it is part of the show. Oh,
1: yeah. It's definitely part of the show. They just don't pay it a lot of attention. Like those Yet. those other gods I've been speaking of. Yeah, that's one of them.
0: I think the Citadel and the Maesters will come back into play. I don't think this season. But they will be there when we need them, I'm hoping. And we'll end up harking back to this episode when that happens.
1: There was also a lot of talk about this annulment. We seem to learn here that Rhaegar Targaryen annulled his marriage in secret to Ilya Martell so that he could marry Lyanna Stark down in Dorne, which of course connects the dots. If that's true, it means Jon is a legitimate Targaryen heir and not a bastard, and that he would be ahead of Danny in the line of succession, if that even matters worth a damn anymore, which it probably does not. But they were also saying that perhaps the annulment doesn't really make sense. Divorce didn't exist in this time, only annulment. And you had to have good reason to do that. Some of the reasons consisted of the marriage was never consummated. So much like with Sansa and Tyrion, where they were able to say, okay, it never happened because we didn't consummate it. Or if the wife could not give her husband an heir... But Elia did. She gave Rhaegar two children. But we had mentioned perhaps Rhaegar intended to take two wives, as some of the Valyrians did, as is more common down in Dorne. Maybe that's why he went there. His whole idea was he needed to fulfill this prophecy, which involved having three children because the dragon had three heads. So that might have been one of the things he was looking for. After Elia gave him the two children, she couldn't have another one. So... You know, maybe he thought that still needed to happen with somebody else. And if that child is John, he was probably correct about that. So, yeah, I don't really think the logistics of an annulment is going to be important. I just think it's another thing to put it out there where John really comes from.
0: Oh, before we move on to our next segments, there was another mistake I did (laughs) last week. And this happens when I have an idea while we're podcasting and I just blurt it out.
1: On the instant cast, yep.
0: And most of the time when that happens, it's something cool and fun and a cool theory comes out. I kind of got myself mixed up when I was talking about them sparring Brienne and Arya.
1: Oh, yes.
0: I had mentioned that Brienne was fighting with her Valyrian sword and then Arya took out her Valyrian dagger and that's Mm -hmm. when they were one-to-one. When we were just talking, that just made sense and was like a beautiful scene in my mind. Going back and looking at it and, you know coming out of the focused mind of being in a podcast and trying to speak. uh, Brienne was using a practice sword, so that was totally dumb.
1: One of our clatchers (laughs) wrote into us, but I think what we were trying to get at is still uh, probably a good point, that what we're seeing is a lot of our major characters come together into these focused areas, and a lot of the potentially important blades coming together. So we've been tracking these Valyrian steel blades, wondering who's going to wind up with them in the end. Will they go back to maybe their more rightful owners? So like we said, will Jorah ever get his hands on Longclaw? Will Jon ever come back to one half of Ned's sword ice, perhaps Oathkeeper, which is currently with Brienne? Will Sam continue to hold Heartsbane? Will he end up doing something with that or will that pass to somebody else? And which one of these swords, if any could be used to become Lightbringer. So what we were thinking about in that moment was, now you have a couple of blades congregating at Winterfell. You have Needle, which is not Valyrian steel, but a blade of significance to Arya. You have the Valyrian steel dagger, and Brienne is still carrying Oathkeeper. She just wasn't using it then.
0: Right. And the dagger is Valyrian steel with dragonglass on it.
1: And it's half of the Stark house blade back in Winterfell. So it's just a lot of cool significance. But yes, thank you guys to pointing that out. It definitely was a practice sword she was using in that moment. My bad! So Jason, there was no sight of wolves yet again. Even in our penultimate season, it appears we are not allowed to have them. John's most dangerous mission yet. We haven't even seen Ghost. No <clears> goodbye <throat> to ghosts. But one of our Clatchers had a good catch here. Michael wrote in to say, we at least got a ghost to reference. By Sansa, who said, "Just sitting around all day waiting for John to return. We miss you, Ghost."
0: <laughs> so funny. Uh, years ago, when we started doing this podcast on Game of Thrones, we were making our segments, and we we're like, "Wolf Watch, this will be our favorite segment." And then week after week, we were like, "Wolf Watch, we have no wolves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're all dying." All of the over $10 million budget and episode that the Double Ds get don't have enough for any wolves. It's all going to Drogon. I mean, this is spectacular. We love the dragons. But Mm -hmm. the wolves were such an important, epic part of the books. To really not get any for so long is kind of disappointing. But um, thank you for the shout-out. It's good to keep that alive. Well, Jason, we've pretty much said it all, so let's keep this brief. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your Raven rating for this episode? 9.0.
0: We had dragons. That always brings it up. We had awesome dragon moments. We had very good key moments with our characters. We had a stupid plan that I didn't like, (laughs) but it was a memorable episode and I liked it.
1: I completely agree with you. I give it a 9.2 for all those same reasons. And on to MVB for the week, Most Valuable Bannerman. Of course, we put up our Clatcher poll with the options of John, Gendry, Sam, and Littlefinger. So let's read those results. By a fairly small margin, Gendry takes it with 46%. In second place is John with 36%. And tied for third are Sam and Littlefinger with 9% each.
0: Once again, thank you everyone for filling in our poll on Twitter. If you haven't yet, you can join in next week at CKC Podcast. Right after the episode, we put up a poll and we ask you for your most valuable bannerman. We also got messages within that poll. Oren said, I love how Gendry just cuts through the BS and forms a connection with Jon. Me too. That was awesome. Yeah. Also, Gendry was very gun ho like, I'm ready to
1: die. This is the mission. I got and none he, to lose. he has known it. He knew there was a purpose for a long time. He just didn't know what it was. And he's game now. He's got his Warhammer ready <laughs> to go.
0: Phonetically Correct wrote, Davos should be on there, if only for his rowing comment.
1: <laughs> yeah he had a key smuggling episode tonight right showing his skills off in other areas i agree but i would give it to davos most episodes <laughs> so we can't have him on there all the time
0: yeah he always has those key moments i mean the the episode before when they're talking to Masande and they're learning about how danny really is he he looks to john and says mind if i switch sides you know, yeah he's got the things.
1: one-liners he can come in handy sometimes in a pinch the thing is he never really owns the episode though And I'm worried for him in the future because what is his point to the central plot? But don't go there because I love him to death.
0: I I disagree with you. His point has always been there. Whenever he's on the scene, he's doing something. It's just not epic,
1: but it's something that
0: really matters.
1: He's the key behind the scenes man like he was to Stannis.
0: Also, this episode, when he lands with Tyrion at King's Landing.
2: Last time I was here, I killed my father with a crossbow. Last time I was here, you killed my son with wildfire.
1: I mean, he could really hold a grudge for that, but he didn't.
0: Yeah. Emily wrote a comment off of this poll. "Braun for arranging the meeting.
1: Yeah, uh, we I think we gave it to Braun last time, though.
0: Anastasia wrote, Sorry to disagree, but I think Sir Davos. Almost always least crazy person in the room.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. True that. You guys know he's my fave.
0: Then we got Davos from Corey and Davos from Danielle. And from Polo, that scene, so good. And it's the scene of our seven warriors walking into the white cloud of the oh, sky. Oh, yeah, epic. Oh, I, I wanted to say, when they opened that northern wall to go back out, I wanted to hear an echo of, you know nothing, Jon Snow.
1: Yeah, Snow. yeah. Because <laughs>
0: that's what I was thinking. Jeez, dude, you know nothing, do oh. you? You haven't learned.
1: Although a lot of people voted for him, and it must have been for the interaction with the dragon, I'm assuming. So I agree with you all. If Davos had been on there, I'd vote for him every time. But I'm going to give it to Gendry for this episode. Like you said, ready and raring to go. And the more I think about it, the more I do believe he's going to be important to our end game. And he was just badass with that warhammer.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go with Gendry as well. Let's be honest; he's the only one that didn't have a stupid idea and go with it, even though he went with them. But
1: <laughs> it was good to see wasn't him. His plan. You know, one of our last sections is Clatcher's comments, and we did read a lot of them out during the episode. Some of the ones we didn't get to yet, Zymi wrote in to say, I've been working on a dragon-related theory, and since I haven't read the books, I will need some backup. I know the Stark children had a relationship with their direwolves, and they had a special bond with them. You've mentioned in the books it grows even deeper than what's on the TV show. We were just talking about that. Hmm. We've been speculating on who will ride Danny's dragons, and pretty much everyone believes John and Tyrion will ride the other two. But instead of Tyrion, could there be a third Targaryen heir we haven't been acknowledging or know about? What I'm trying to say is, Targaryen should have the same special bond with their dragons as Starks with their direwolves. So, aren't we missing a third Targaryen child? And I responded to say, yes, this is a great theory. And without going too far into it, because it would spoil some stuff from the books there is a slight possibility there. Because the next books haven't come out yet, we don't know where it's going to go, but there was a book character that could have fit this role that a lot of people now believe was just a red herring and it seems too late to bring him in in season seven. So I think you would love that plotline from the books. Definitely go check that out and give it a read, but on the TV version, I think not. Although, we can't totally eliminate that from Tyrion's heritage because he was able to connect with the dragon much the way Jon was. And we've had our speculations about Tyrion and his potential background. And speaking of parentage, Eric wrote in about Jon and also Bran's visions. He said, I've been having some thoughts regarding Bran and his green sight. As far as we know, Bran has primarily had visions about the Night King. And also one about Jon's parentage. Lately, I've been wondering about the latter. To us viewers, the reveal of Jon's parents is obviously exciting. But in the context of the show, why does it matter? With the threat of the White Walkers becoming more and more imminent, why would someone with such powerful foresight give a crap about a nearly extinct line of monarchs? I'm not sure he cares about Targaryens or their dragons, or else why not have visions about Dany? That's a good point. What is it about John being the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna that's so important to the Three-Eyed Raven? Maybe there's more backstory that alludes to a relationships between the White Walkers and dragons. I've heard it said the Night King might have been a Stark, and we know dragons have ties to ancient Valyria. If both are true, John is literally a bridge between dragons and White Walkers, which could bounce off of the theory that you guys had. What if they are both forces of nature set upon each other by R'hllor and the Great Other, and John is the key to putting them to rest? So I think this actually perfectly fits our theory that we were talking about, the two ancient powers, the fire side being the Lord of Light Religion and R'hllor, and he's saying the ice side would actually be the Great Other. So instead of the old gods, it could be this Other that's talked about.
0: But now you got me confused because you keep saying that the Whites are called Others.
1: (laughs) They are in the books. (laughs) There was also a, a god called the Great Other. Jesus! It's just too many terminologies. But... I think you could see where I'm going with this. It's two sides of things. And we, we basically kind of agree with you. It's
0: so funny. That just reminds me. You have the great other. You have the others. You have a girl that calls herself no one.
1: <laughs> and that's
0: what, <laughs> when I made that opening sequence to our podcast, the, the song, that was my point that I was trying to get across. Trying to explain to someone what this show is about and how you sound.
1: Is insane. And then
0: there's this this guy who has no penis and there's (laughs) dragons and what is dracarys you know
1: (laughs) well the tv show made it even worse that's why i like to call white walkers others and this is what tripped me up so much last time if you call them whites and white walkers that's way too much the same why couldn't they be whites and others (laughs) and the other thing always made sense to me because it was like they are not of this world they're not necessarily bad or evil they're just other they're different And I think that kind of explained a little bit more maybe where they're coming from and what's behind this mission they might think they have and their own religion. And possibly that's a religion we've seen already. Possibly it has ties to the many-faced God and the balance of death, why they need to take certain people from this world, possibly to the old gods. Who knows? I mean, they often said that maybe a lot of these religions are all just one. Maybe they're not separate the way we have these religions that we think are so different. But if you come down to some of the common themes, you know, in real life, they're very similar. And so when the Andals came over to Westeros, they brought with them this new god, this new religion. People were worshiping the old gods and what they had learned from the children of the forest until they came over talking about the new gods, you know, the seven-pointed star and what we see worshipped in King's Landing at the Great Sept of Baelor before Cersei burned it down. Yeah, And each one had an aspect. So there was a mother, there was a father. But people said that could all just be a lot of different faces to one god. And so you keep coming back to they're all basically the same thing. And I think that is going to tie into this story. And our last comment is a big one, Jason. Samantha says, what if this catch a white plan goes wrong? What if they don't have any luck capturing one? What if they come to the conclusion it would be easier to have one of them die and just resurrect as a white? So if they can't do it, and this makes a lot of sense, if one of them does die north of the wall, they would just turn into a white, right? They would be a risen dead. Right. So there she's thinking one of them might have to sacrifice themselves to die so that they will have a white that they can bring back.
0: But I don't think you just if you die north of the wall, you automatically become a white. The Night King finds you and then makes you a white. Uh
1: kind of, but anybody that we've seen die north of the wall, even if it takes a little bit of time, eventually comes back. That's why when they took those two people that had died back to the wall, they put them in the ice cells so they could wait for them to turn and then study them, or else they burned them before that could happen. But it seems like even if he's not close to you, they are reanimated wherever they are at some point.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, we don't exactly know the rules, but it's a good point that if you're north of the wall, I think that would happen eventually. And man, that would be crazy. I don't think they're going to get out of this without having to confront the Whites. Now, whether they will be able to capture one or not is a different story, and what length will they go to If they have to run for their lives, they might not have time enough for a plan like that. But it is interesting. So thank you to everybody that wrote in. If it was a similar theory, we might not have read it separately, but we did read it on our own. And hopefully I got a chance to respond to all of you. They were really great thoughts. And that's going to do it for our full review cast for episode five.
0: Before we move on to a sneak peek through the heart tree, I just want to thank everyone who's been leaving reviews for our podcast. It means so much to us. We read every single one. We love them. Also want to thank you all for following us on Twitter. Those numbers have been going up.
1: Wait, Jason, don't come off of that. We have been trying to break a personal record on review numbers because the most we had ever gotten up until now was on Westworld. Westworld. And I think we are two reviews away from breaking that. So if you're listening, it would mean so much to us if you haven't left a review yet and you are liking what you hear. I think we're going to hit that number very soon.
0: All the great letters. We really appreciate the camaraderie. Again, the reason why we made this podcast is to make a community where we can discuss our favorite TV shows and not be afraid to say the wrong thing or make a mistake. Just live through the shows and have fun. A lot of us work menial jobs. Talking about myself here, too. (laughs) And we live through other characters. And this was a way for a community to do that together. So thank you again. And I'm just saying we, we really appreciate it. And if you love these shows, check out our Westworld, our Mr. Robot, The Magicians. We had one of the lead actors of The Magicians, Arjun Gupta, on the podcast.
1: It's been a really hectic GOT season, and it's been a lot of work for Jason and I, but I have to say it's also been one of the most fun because you have been so involved. It's been really great hearing all of your theories, and it's so clear that we all just share the same passion for Game of Thrones. Absolutely. Jason and I are going to make mistakes from time to time. Just because we're doing a podcast doesn't mean we necessarily uh, get everything right. But that's what half the fun has been. We're not afraid to spin these wild theories, even if we know they're not going to be right. And having you guys participate and give us your thoughts on that, it's been a lot of fun. So if you are afraid of spoilers, we will see you next time. We're just going to give our brief synopsis that we got in the preview for episode six. For everyone that's still here, we know the next episode will be titled Death is the Enemy. We finally got that because they haven't been putting up the titles until the last minute.
0: Death is the Enemy. They reanimate to be your enemy. Guess we have some people dying.
1: Yeah, and we hear on this range north, they say death is the first enemy and the last. The enemy always wins, but we still need to fight him. And our group is standing in a circle as snow comes down and we see the whites start to attack. Winter is here. We also see John running. So I think everything goes to shit and this is him just trying to book it out of there.
0: No, I think what's happening is John sees... I watched it like 30 times. Okay. (laughs) He starts to hear noises through that cave opening. I don't know if you call it a cave, a ridge. There's an opening between two large stones, mountains, whatever.
1: Okay. And that's
0: when we see the whites coming in. And they start booking it to that center rock that we've seen in, in the trailers before the season started where they're all fighting together on a rock.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: So they're booking it to that rock.
1: Yeah, because they're running from the army of the dead.
0: Right, but not running away. They're running to the rock, and then they're going to fight To make them. a stand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, like I said, that's a huge-ass army. Unless they start breaking out the fire, what do they think they're going to... You you can't just decapitate them or stab them. These things, their body parts will keep moving. They don't die that way.
0: Yeah, I don't know how... Again, I don't know how they're going to catch one.
1: Bonfire.
0: We also see the hound, and if you pause it, he's using Gendry's hammer. Why does a hound have it? Did Gendry die, or did Gendry throw the hammer to the hound? Oh, I don't know. It's the exact same hammer, and that has me worried. I didn't
1: see that. That's scary.
0: And again, let's remember this is the second-to-last episode. That means this is going to be a banger.
1: Maybe they start to get their backs up against a wall. It's looking really bad. Danny. Starts feeling really bad. She's like, shit, maybe this was a really wrong idea. I sent him to his death. I got to go save him. She rides in on Drogon and roasts them.
0: <laughs> that would be awesome. Wouldn't
1: that be amazing?
0: And I believe Benjen's going to show up. One of the last scenes in the trailer is Jon Snow riding away on a horse. Where do you get the horse from? It's Benjen's horse.
1: Oh, I definitely think he will. And that'll be the end of Benjen.
0: Yep. Now, let's not forget, we hear Arya saying, you're scared, aren't you? What are you scared of? Now, who is she talking to? Is she talking to Sansa? Is she talking to...
1: Bran, who's getting visions Brand. of this battle. Yeah.
0: That, I think that's most likely. Yeah. Or is she talking <laughs> to Littlefinger as she's on top of him about to kill him? Because that would be awesome. You scared?
1: You scared? Whose face scared, is bitch? she wearing when she says that? Because that could be real scary. Oh,
0: who has Littlefinger really <laughs> messed with in the past? That would.
1: Oh, shit. Shit. I got to think on that one.
0: Oh my god, what about her mom's face? Oh, Holy is this going shit. back to
1: the theory that Lady Stoneheart is walking around the halls of Winterfell right now?
0: Oh man, that would be epic.
1: <laughs> okay, we're getting crazy cuz we're really tired. We're going to wrap it up for this episode wrap 5. It up. We can't wait to see you next time when we review episode 6 Death is the Enemy.
0: Real quick on our ad, Songfinch. If you want to hear the full song, go to this episode on our website and there'll be a link there for the full this rounds on me song.
1: With respect, your grace, I don't need your permission. I am a king.
0: I came here knowing that you could have your men behead me or your dragons burn me alive. I put my trust in you, a stranger, because I knew it was the best chance for my people, for all our people. Now I'm asking you to trust in a stranger.
1: Thank you again to our sponsor for this episode, Songfinch.
0: Listen, this is the perfect way to gift your loved one. Weddings, anniversaries, graduation, birthdays. The possibilities are endless.
1: You tell them the story and they create the song, an original one from your memories and experiences, in just seven days.
0: It's so much fun when you get it in the mail and it's finally completed. They give you the lyrics and immediately you can press play and listen to your story come to life.
1: Not only that, if it isn't more than you expected, you can reach out to them and they will make it right. But having gone through this ourselves, we can pretty much guarantee that you are going to love it. They've been featured on USA Today, Forbes, CBS, and a lot more. Jason, I have to tell you my favorite part about our song is where they talk about Achilles.
0: So good. And that's the thing. They can make it as personal as you want it. So Clatchers, who have been with us since day one... They know, before we got a new studio, that we used to have our bird, Achilles, who's a parrot, in the same room as us. Whenever he had enough of us talking, he would fly over to the microphone, land on it, and just start talking into the mic.
1: Chime in with his two cents, which this song perfectly illustrates. It was like they took a snapshot of the history of Coffee Clatch Crew, everything we've gone through in the past four years building this up, and created a personal anthem for us. Check it out and try it for yourself.
0: Go over to songfinch.com. You can see an array of other different types of songs they've done for other people. And when you're ready to gift that special someone a song, enter promo code CLATCHERS, that's K-L-A-T-C-H-E-R-S, for $20 off.
1: That's promo code CLATCHERS for $20 off your first song.
0: And we leave you with a little more of our song, This Rounds on Me.
2: Ago, you know we started it up Took a TV shows and movies Other things have been up. With old friends and new friends Just tying up the loose ends Nerding out without a doubt That's where we begin And anyone who listens in You know it's plain to see Like hydrogen and oxygen Between Chris and me Just like the water She lets it flow It was smooth like jazz But you probably already know You know Every now and then We let the bird chime in But Achilles doesn't really know Where to begin So he'll fly on over When it starts to get real And say I'm you doing baby and that's the drill we're talking game of thrones and mr robot too but the best part about it all was hearing from you so here's a little gratitude and ounce of truth thanks for listening to us while we do what we do come on come and join the clutches it will set you free if you decide to tune in then this round's on me come and join the clutches it will set you free if you decide to tune in then this round's on me